0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of what we can't not talk about special in this case, because you're about to listen to the table talk that uh, Emeritus Professor Norman Farmer delivered for us on October 18, 2021. Professor Farmer's talk titled The Beauties of Things Visible and Invisible in the Tuscan Casentino, Reflections of a Pilgrim, was a deep dive in beauty with a capital B. As you will hear, was a talk about that kind of beauty that cannot but be good and true at the same time? That is the beauty that converts our souls. That is the beauty that we recognize in holy places, the one that we recognize behind the smile of a good friend, I would add. The Casentino, Professor Farmer, thinks is a special place in this regard, and as an Italian, I'm pretty happy that he believes that. The restaurant where this talk was hosted became a very special place, too, I would say. The video of the talk will still be on our YouTube channel, too, if you want to watch it. And before you tune in, just a few words about Professor Farmer. Norma Farmer is a sad professor emeritus in the Department of English at UT Austin, received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 1966, he served as, a, as the director of the Humanities program in the College of Liberal Arts for over a decade and received many awards over the years, including the UT Most uh, Best Professor Teaching Award, the Thomas Cranfield Teaching Fellowship, the Jan Holloway Award for Teaching Excellence, and the Graduate School Award for Teaching Excellence. He was also a director and teacher for the University of Texas Study in Italy program at Castiglione Fiorentino, Italy, which is why that's what he talked about. And through the Center for International Leadership in Washington, D.C., he led seminars for executives of American and multinational corporations examining corporate culture, leadership development, and corporate, as well as individual ethical values. Enjoy this episode, friends. Share it with other friends. And remember to support our work.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here. I think I will bring something to your your mission that um, in the long run is probably is as valuable as anything I can imagine. Um, my interest is in a place in Italy. Um, it's called the Casentino. but before I go there, I want to start with three premises that are going to run around through my various remarks. Beauty is what we see. More beautiful is what we understand. Most beautiful is what we do not comprehend. This is an epigram that was written back in the 17th century by an Italian. Well, he was a Dane before he became an Italian and he was an anatomist, in fact, one of the greatest anatomists in Europe in the 17th century. And as you know, or may know, uh, there were a lot of them. This guy was on top. This is the guy who discovered actually that the human heart is just a muscle, no different from the heart of a horse that he was anatomizing at the same time. And he realized that the muscle structure was exactly the same. And after discovering things like this, He also um, became the father of modern geology. He discovered stratification, the principle of stratification. And stratification is something that has a lot to do with what I'm going to talk about tonight because it has to do with the creation of a place in Tuscany that is absolutely unusual and unique. It's an enclosed valley. There are not too many of those. Most of them are, you know, kind of haphazard. But this is different, and I'll read you some responses to that from geologists. But for right now, these kinds of beauty or these effects of beauty are some things I'd ask you to just hold in your mind. Now, I'm not going to present something that uh, leads to a conclusion. Rather, I'm going to present some things that I hope will sort of rattle your cage. Uh, I've given some texts, and I'm going to refer to these. I'm not going to read you through all of them, but there are some things I am going to ask you to read because we are on a journey, and that journey is something that we... We all will have. Let me go back here. Uh, for uh, all of us, uh, the Casentino is marked right here on this map. Many people don't know anything about it. I dare say that there, that I'm Cora and I are the only ones in this room who have been there, or am I wrong? Uh, even the Italian in the room does not go, has not gone there. Well. It is only 35K or, uh, it's 50K, about 35 miles east of Florence. It's just north, about uh, another 25 miles from Arezzo, as you can see here. And down through this valley of the Casentino is a huge mountain, right at the top, is is a huge mountain, Mount Falterona. Mount Falterona is... uh, Uh, geologically interesting. It's pushed up to a pretty good height and yet there is a spring that comes out of the upper side of it and that spring carries the headwaters of the Arno River. The Arno finds a way to go down the valley and goes out onto the plain of Arezzo, but the Arno is pretty fundamental to the old cultures of the valley. It begins with the Etruscans, those kind of um, shadowy people that we don't know very much about. Uh, Some odd people like D.H. Lawrence thought they knew a lot about them, but there's a lot more to it. The Arno was very special to them. They used to sacrifice things, uh, golden little maquettes and uh, images and utensils and so on and they used to throw these things into what is now called the Lake of the Idols. It's it's now kind of a tourist trap, but in 1846, a shepherd girl was herding sheep around this little lake up at the top of uh, Mount Falterona, on the sides of Mount Falterona, and she picked up a golden object, and she took it back, and before long, Archaeologists from England, France, Germany, and wherever else, were swarming the place. They found some 2,000 objects in that little lake. And ever since, it's been called the Lake of the Idols. If you want to see any of them, you'll have to go to the British Museum, or to the Louvre, or to several other places, because they got, well, robbed. Robbed. These things are artifacts to be sure, but they indicate that the Etruscans felt something about this valley that was unusual, and there is indeed something unusual about it, and that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, It's a beautiful place. Uh, This is from the top of the valley looking south toward Arezzo. It's about 25 to about 28 miles from where we, where I am standing here, to the uh, to the farthest mountains down here, which are above Arezzo. And there are a number. There are actually seven or eight tributary valleys that mark this uh, this place. And in through throughout all of these valleys. Um, You have some of what I would consider the most beautiful scenery in the world. I've been to a lot of places, and I know there are a lot of places that somebody thinks they're more beautiful, but this is pretty stunning. Uh, I know uh, Mariana is is, is quibbling with that already. Well, I'm going to get to where you're from pretty soon. I've got something for you. Uh, this castle down here is it goes back to about 1130, not morning, but uh, A.D. <laughs> it, it was a ca- it is a castle of the Guidi counts, who in Ottonian uh, times—that uh, is, after the collapse of the Roman Empire and the, the collapse of Charlemagne's empire and so on. The Guidi Counts, who were from uh, the Ottonian Empire in northern Europe, began to percolate down into this area, and they were the governance. And that was one of their castles. It's a ruin now, but it's a pretty important ruin. It signals a kind of culture that might not have happened, had it not been for these people. The Guidi were... Christians, of course. They supported the Christianization of Europe that happened. You know, it it went on and on through the the ninth, through the millennium, and then on into the uh, 1000s. And it led uh, Rudolfus Glauber, who wrote a book about it then, to characterize this Christianization as the white mantle of churches that was beginning to cover Europe. Well, this white mantle of churches is really kind of the first thing in this story that begins to tell us, you know, there's a lot of poetry here. There's a lot of fact. Actually, there's a lot of geology. And actually, there's a lot of Christian theology. So this is a big mix. It's a huge mix and you kind of wonder how all of these things can coexist in one place and for one lonely speaker trying to make some sense of all of them. So let me go on to some things that are I wanted to get just right. I have to apologize, this was written this afternoon. And I apologize, because there are many versions of this. I've been working on this uh, this project for over 25 years. It goes back a long way, and I will explain some of that here. These were following reflections began to form some 25 years ago when the mayor of Castiglione Fiorentino, a lovely hill town in Tuscany, told me, if you want To find the heart of Tuscany, you will need to look in the Casentino. This is a guy that you don't take lightly. He is a humanist, he is a uh, he's a politician, but he's a good one. He's also a scholar, he's also an engineer. I mean, this guy, when he said that to me, I kind of said where are you coming from or what, what what do you mean find the heart it's, of course it's it, it's in Florence Nah, not Florence well I did look in the Casentino and today I still do for the personal miracle to come from that wisdom and the search that it initiated was my own conversion to the Catholic faith. As for the heart of Tuscany, Giuseppe Alpini was right. For during the years that followed and right into this evening's talk, the miracle of the Casantino has guided the course of my own conversion, which in St. Benedict's terms means a continuing way of life. Conversion is not just, oh, you step over the line and. You know now you're in the in the, uh, in the good part and now you're in oh well that's where you were no for a benedictine conversion means you keep going once you make that first step it's a journey it's not a moment for the heart of Tuscany does not pulse in Florence rather it beats strongly throughout a singularly beautiful 250-square-mile valley that has been deeply enriched by the lives and acts of dozens, of a dozen, saints, a land whose unforgettable religious geography consists of some 80 places of the faith. Hermitages. Religi- uh, hermitages. Monasteries, convents, two sanctuaries dedicated to apparitions of the Blessed Mother of God. All in addition to oratorios, chapels, shrines, and a host of little churches tucked away in all those valleys. And what is more, over 40 of these places of the faith Hold a veritable treasury of sacred art. Flowers of the faith, where prayer is made visible in perpetuity and the opportunities for contemplation are never restrained. That's important. American art historians don't know anything about that. In fact, when I was teaching in Italy with colleagues from my university over here on the other side of the road, I couldn't get them interested in going to the Cosentino. We don't go there. We don't know anything about that. Well, that'll speak for itself. But throughout this valley, the beauties of created nature co-inhere with the beauties of thought, deed, and prayer that are everywhere incarnate in this valley. So much so that one can firmly declare here, through divine providence, God guided his creation to a very particular perfection that would be developed by saints such as Romolo or Romulus. Okay. He was a martyr, first bishop of Fiesole whose conversion, according to tradition, was at the hands of St. Peter himself. St. Rommeld, who founded the great hermitage and monastery at Camaldoli in 1010. It's still operational. San Gualberto, who founded the monastery, the big monastery at Palombrosa, in which uh, Milton, John Milton, is uh, traditionally thought to have held conversations with Galileo. St. Peter Damian, contemplative, abbot, bishop, then cardinal, and author of the famous Vita for Romualdo's cause. St. Francis of Assisi, founder of the Friars Minor and first known stigmatist who, Having received that miraculous blessing upon Mount Laverna in 1224, made Mount Laverna in the Cosentino one of the most famous holy places in the world. St. Bonaventure, minister general of the Franciscan order, cardinal bishop of Albano, seraphic doctor and author of The Soul's Journey into God, which he composed during a long retreat upon Mount Laverna. St. Anthony of Palova, and this is gonna be a surprise for the night because I'm gonna drop a bomb on that one, who had a special effect affection for Mount Laverna as a place for withdrawing to satisfy his contemplative yearnings. You know, there is a pilgrim path that leads from Padova to the Casentino and directly to Mount Laverna. And if you go online and look at it, it's just like the Via Francigena, it's just like any other of those, but the people at Padova say this is a primo. This is a pilgrimage. All right. St. Anthony shared Francis' love for the hidden caves. And now I'm gonna go through some more pictures. Here's another picture. I want you to keep these things in the back of your mind as we talk, as I talk. Uh, This is the view from uh, up on one of the promontories in the Cosentino. The valley, uh, the uh, Arno River, comes down through here and goes through Stia, and then it winds around and goes through um, the town that's just below here, and the town that's over here, Poppi. In all of this, I don't want to omit Dante Alighieri as a guest in exile when he was booted from Florence and told you can't come back here because if you do, we are going to burn you. Uh, He took refuge with the Counts Guidi in the Casentino. He had been there before in the Battle of Campidoldo, but he came back. And at least 21 cantos, the Divine Comedy were written, according to my friends in Dante studies who make a count of things, at least 21 of these cantos were written whilst in the Casentino. Now, it is the voices of the voices, the poetry, the wisdom, and the deep, Spirituality of these remarkable men who blessed this single valley with a profound religious history and an immeasurably rich religious geography that resonates throughout this valley. Yes, this is the miracle of the Casentino and the grounds for calling it the heart of Tuscany. Unless that claim raise doubts. Let's look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which I think uh, Nick is it on the. Um, it, it's on it's on the handout, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to read this because this is this is amazing. Creation did not spring forth complete from the hands of the Creator. Okay, yeah, the universe was created in a state of journeying in statu. V-I, toward an ultimate perfection yet to be attained to which God destined it. We call divine providence the dispositions by which God guides his creation toward this perfection. Well, think about it. Whether one measures creation according to deep time, geologists, or according to the six days of the heptameron, one day in the sight of the Lord is as a thousand. And time is a creature like ourselves and not the context of God. This journeying that the, the uh, catechism speaks of is actually timeless. Listen then to the way Alter Walter Alvarez, a prominent geologist, i going to find this in a moment, writes about how this land was actually made. It was pretty phenomenal. Alpine geology writes Walter Alvarez who is he taught at Berkeley for a number of years and He writes this in a book which you can take a look at up here on the table if you want to It's called the mountains of st. Francis And the mountains of st. Francis is a remarkable work by a world-class Geologist who has done all the science that one can possibly do and without being a religious man on paper, obviously understands what's at the root of what he is writing about. And this is what one of the things he says. This is just an example. Uh, I urge you to buy that book, It's, it's a great read. Alpine geology is so complicated, when plate tectonics replaced continental fixism in the study of geology from the 1960s onward, and made it possible to say that, quote, an ocean can close up if its crust is subducted, beginning its border is, uh, bringing its bordering continents toward each other. The Alps are an impressive example of what the Earth can do. Imagine one continent driving over another, continent smearing out, crushing, compellingly, completely eliminating the ocean floor that once separated them. When you think about the forces that shaped those mountains that we are looking at, it's fascinating to think of that as being journeying. This is not something that was done in a day, or a thousand, or a million, but something that was done, that was shaped, and the Creator shaped it. Now, the part about divine providence gives some people a little bit of hmm, trouble. If God created it, it was divine providence that followed the dispositions of what went on in it. And somehow, divine providence saw to it that that litany of saints that I just read you, plus several others, came there, and they founded, and they left their mark. Through divine providence, this uniquely formed valley becomes a veritable laura. A laura is a, uh, an area in which hermits have their little cottages. You know, being a hermit doesn't mean that you just lock yourself up always. Hermit means that you, you live alone, but you mingle outside. The monks, they have to stay. They are in, in choir all, all the time. They pray. But the hermit, he's got some freedom, but he also has a towering responsibility. It is a place where exterior and interior solitude coexist. Therefore, Costantino, that place, journeys to the perfection for which God destined it. While in the meantime, the language of geographic geological formation. Lingers in the DNA of the psalmist. Remember how the psalmist writes about mountains skipping like lambs? Well, you probably have known, do you know the book about uh, uh, Noah uh, that's been written by a couple of geologists? I should have brought it. But uh, the, uh, the Mediterranean was at one point a desert. Literally, dry, dry. Wasn't a speck of water in it. A total desert, the Mediterranean Sea. And they've got some fascinating instances of how they know that through sedimentation and so on. Well, when the dam broke at Gibraltar, it filled up again. And this is the kind of massive change that goes on Casantino is a result of all that change. My epiphany of that co-inherence came one afternoon in this tiny church right here on the verge of an upland meadow near the hamlet called Valiana. The view of the valley from this location is stunning. You've already seen it. And here's this. But the flower of faith that blooms within this church took my breath away. That right there. That painting is probably, um, it would would fit nicely at the end of one of these tables and probably hang over by a foot on either side. We don't know who painted it. We don't know how it got there. But we do know that, back in the 1970s, the Superintendenti of uh, fine arts, Belliardi, uh, in Arezzo notified the parish of Valiana, we are going to have to take your painting in and put it in the museum in Arezzo. It's not safe where it is. That guy lit a bonfire. The people of Casantino were outraged, and they made that outrage known, and the painting was removed and brought back, taken from the museum, and brought back here. That tells you how much that painting meant. It's not art. It is part of their lives, and let's look at it for just a moment, and you can get some idea why. Christ is standing in a tomb. His mother, dressed as a servite, in the black robes of a servite, attends to him. This is the Pietà, except it's different from Michelangelo. Michelangelo has him in her lap. But here, uh, she's standing beside the tomb. You're looking at him over a tomb. Uh, Guess what? Uh, you're, You're looking at your own end. The locks are sprung. On the back, the cross is predominant. It's covered with the Armi Christi, the the implements of insult, degradation, injury. All of these things are hung on the cross as trophies of victory. But there's one feature of this painting that most people, I think, will miss. Do you see anything strange hanging from the cross that doesn't belong with the instruments of the crucifixion? I'll buy a glass of wine for the first person that finds it. (laughs) Hmm? No, the reed is there because that was what they, they struck Christ with. It's this thing right here, right behind St. John's head. Can, uh, Can anybody figure out what it is? Okay, it is the banner of the resurrection, which is a red cross on a white background but it is shrouded. There's a shroud tied around it. It's covered. We know what it is, but it isn't unfurled. Well, guess what? We suddenly realize, this is Holy Saturday. Every day at San Romolo is Holy Saturday, and the people of Valiana pray that. Holy Saturday is the day that Christ is in the tomb, but it's the day that precedes the resurrection. And this painting is an affirmation of the power of the cross. It's a magnificent painting. Now, let me tell you what I found myself doing. I'm inside this little place. It's it's really no bigger than this room that we're in, the church. And it's up there on the wall and I'm, I'm walking around and I go to the front door which is over to my right and what I see out there is a range of Apennine Mountains in a, sun, in a sinking sun. So I've got this layered effect of golden light. So I turn around and I go back and I look at this and I think about this for a bit. Then I go back to the front door, and I think about that for a little bit. What came out of that for me is the coinherence of natural beauty that you see and a beauty that you can understand as we understand this painting. But both of those point toward a beauty that is greater still. The beauty that we basically cannot comprehend. This is the greatest mystery of our faith. and is right there in front of us. Here the epigram works again. Beauty is what we see. More beautiful is what we understand most beautiful is what we do not comprehend i realized that moment that i was suspended in body and thought somewhere between see and understand and at that moment began yearning to immerse myself into what no one one can truly comprehend transcendent beauties that lie beyond sight beyond understanding and beyond merely human comprehension And that brings us to another one of the elements in your handout. As I was standing up there looking at that, and as I went back on a number of occasions and have thought about it ever since, it occurred to me that this is very much like the passage that you have right here, the excerpt from Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, my soul. You are great indeed. You are clothed with majesty, glory, robed in light as with a cloak. You spread the heavens like a tent. You raised your palace above the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You travel on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers. Flaming fire, your ministers. I'm not going to read it all. But I do want you to note that there are a couple of passages down here that are marked They give drink to every beast of the field. Here wild asses quench their thirst. And then down at the very bottom, junipers are the home of the stork. The high mountains are for wild goats and rocky cliffs, a refuge for rabbits. This poem of praise takes the tourist out of you. You stand, you look back and forth. You toggle back and forth from something like that painting, and the view that we have from the door where that painting is. This is this tells you what you're looking at. A guidebook doesn't. Maybe that's why guidebooks don't exist really for the Cosentino. Now years later, I realized that this was a very special moment. And I've put down here St. Rommel's Rule. Hint as to where I'm going. This is the kind of thing that awakens contemplation. And we'll get to that with St. Anthony in a few moments. Sit in your cell like in paradise. Now this is the rule for all novices and for all hermits and for all monks at Camaldoli. It's a hundred words and that's all. Throw the entire world behind your back out of your memory and take heed of your thoughts as a good fisherman does of fish. One way is in the Psalms. Do not stray from it. You cannot do all things. You who came with the fervor of a novice. Do your best to sing psalms in your spirit and understand them by your mind. Now in this place, now in another. If you should begin to wander off while you are reading, do not give up, but hurry to amend it by an understanding. Before all things, place yourself in the presence of God with fear and trembling as one who stands before the face of the emperor. Destroy yourself utterly and sit there like a chick, content with God's mercy. Since if its mother would not feed it, it would not know what to eat, nor have anything to eat. So I found that I was being invited by this experience to go on a journey that I had not gone on before. And now I'm going to ask you to turn to the... uh, Quotes from Dante's Purgatorio. This is a journey. I'm not going to read this. Uh, this is too long. We've got to eat. But the important thing is that in this canto, canto 10 of the Purgatorio, he's going out, he's, he's gone to the base of the hill of Purgatory. And he has not yet gone up. The, up the hill, but he is at the, at the very first rising, and the, fir- and the thing that he sees is three cameos carved as the words tell you in a way that is totally realistic. It's better than any sculptor, it's, even, it's almost better than nature. But they're carved in this rock wall, and the first one depicts the Annunciation. The second depicts David dancing in wild fervor before the Ark of the Covenant. The third one is Trajan at the moment he stops a whole army in order to give justice to one poor woman. Now, what does this have to do with us in Cosentino? This is the model for a way to read the Cosentino. Be Dante. Be yourself as Dante. Go about it. All of that art is there just as Dante found it in, at the base of the mountain. But it's there for the same purpose. And that purpose is purgatorial. It takes you somewhere else. It takes you out of yourself. It puts you in that nest for a moment. Now, knowing that, let's move forward. If I can get these pages apart. Come on. I want you to look at the Canticle of Brother-Son. Now, um, literature people, um, I'm talking about my colleagues for close to 40 years, a little over 40 years, don't teach this. Guess why? It is verboten because it has to do with things of the spirit. And when you deconstruct or you analyze or you critique this, you're concerning yourself only with accidentals. When it was done, who did it, who paid for it, blah, blah, blah. Where it is, how do the manuscripts unfold, blah, blah, blah. Those are all accidentals. Aquinas told us about that. What's the substance? So here, at the, at the expense of, you've you got to eat your soup. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going here. Let's look at it. Because there's a word, there are a few words in here that are going to slip up on you. Most high, all-powerful, good Lord, yours are the praises, the glory, the honor, and the blessing. To you alone, most high, do they belong. No human is worthy. That's important, too. No human is worthy to mention your name. That's St. Francis. Praise be you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially brother son. Sir, brother, son, who is the day and through whom you give us light. And he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor and bears a likeness to you, most high one. Praise be you, my Lord, through sister moon, through sister moon. Notice he's not praising anything. The speaker is not praising anything. He's asking that others praise God, because humans are not worthy to mention his name. Praise be you, my Lord, through brother wind. Praise be you, Lord, through sister water. Praise be you, my Lord, through brother fire. Praise be you, my Lord, through your sister mother earth. Praise be you, my Lord, through those who gave pardon, give pardon for your love. Praise be you, my Lord, through our sister bodily death. There's nothing in there to justify calling that a nature poem. It is not a nature poem, and Francis is not a nature poet. Francis has done something that most of us, when we travel, just never think of doing. I never had before I got into this. Uh, I'm going to invoke Romano Guardini for a moment, because he talks a bit about how um, someone helped him. I think it was uh, Sheila. I forget who it was. Taught him uh, the importance of having a a Catholic worldview. And a Weltanschauung of a Catholic is not to just look at things, but to look at what things are doing. And here's the key to the canticle of Brother Sun. What is all of that going on in the world? Now, this painting right here, which you have, I I, uh, asked Nick to give you a copy of it in your Handouts, so you can go back to it. This is by Giovanni Bellini, a Venetian, a Venetian poet, and Venetians live very close to where Saint Anthony lived in Padova. It's uh, one stop on the on the, on the metro. <laughs> This painting has been for years at the Frick Museum in New York. Maybe some have you some have you seen it there? Have you gone to the Frick? Well, you should go to the Frick. It's a good place. However, it was bought by Henry Clay Frick back in the eighteen hundreds because he wanted to have a landscape to go with his other landscapes. And the people at the Frick and the documents that they will show you are very happy to tell you he wanted that landscape. Okay, It is a stunning landscape. Never seen one quite like that. And no wonder he wanted it. In those days, he paid the equivalent of several hundred million dollars for it now. And it is the prize painting at the Frick. Some people say it's the best painting in America. Okay, that's true too, but not for the reasons that people give. Do you see any marks of the stigmata on the figure who is standing there? It's called, this is called Saint Francis in ecstasy or Saint Francis, you know, one way or another. Anyway, it's called Saint Francis. Do you see any sign of the stigmata? No, it would have to be prominent on the chest right here, it would have to be prominent in the hands right here, but it's not. Why would St. Francis be depicted by a major Venetian uh, poet painter and not have the stigmata? I can't imagine just that's like oil and water so the other option is another the other saint who occupies the Casantino. it's St. Anthony himself St. Anthony was well I think I can read it to you better than I can say it St. Anthony if I can find it. Had a special affection, this is his biographer, had a special affection for Mount Laverna as a place for withdrawing time to time to satisfy his contemplative yearnings. Anthony shared Francis' love for the hidden caves of this mountaintop where Francis had received the five wounds of Christ. Anthony loved praying in one of the little caves on the mountain. In memory of Anthony's visits, the cave has been transformed in in recent times into the oratory of St. Francis and is still a popular stop For laverna visitors today well guess what this is not of Francis this is st. Anthony in prayer and now I want to ask you to look at that painting and notice the clarity and luminosity of it it's not visionary It's just pure vision, as only Giovanni Bellini can do it. If you go to the friary in Venice and look at Giovanni Bellini's mother and child on the right altar, uh, you think she's going to walk right out and talk to you. (laughs) It's It's amazing. This has a depth, luminosity, and specificity to it that is utterly rare. But is this just a tour de force? no absolutely not because what I believe and I'm yet working on this for the publication what I believe is that St. Anthony at that place it it is a cave and you can tell that it's a little oratory he's got a seat there he's got um, a little stand for a book and he is barefooted why The place on which he stands is holy ground. Moses got that message real fast. What is he doing? Well, if you go back to the psalm that I gave you, it talks about the asses that water, the stork that appears. It talks about the little rivulet that comes out right here. It talks about the rabbit that is just below Francis' right hand. This painting is quoting Psalm 104. It is a direct quote. You can't deny it. So what? Well, the quote from the psalm And the quote, the quote of all those details, tells you that this is really a kind of painted prayer. And it also tells you that the canticle is at play here because all of these things are praising God, praise through you, through this, through that. The word per, as as you know, it has various possibilities of translation. But per here means through. So he's not praising anything. He is putting himself in the context of a light that comes only from acknowledging the praise of God in his creatures so that I think is kind of a bombshell they're not gonna like that at the Frick when I, when I write it but they just published a, uh, a coffee table book on this painting which goes into all kinds of details about the accidentals they even know you know the uh, <laughs> the graphics and the, the light emanation from different parts of the painting. And you know it's very technical. I guess very interesting, but it's all accidental. Finally, I want to take you on a couple of side journeys, which illumine all of this in one way or another. The other is from Celano's first life of Francis. Chilano writes of the, let me find it here, writes of the stigmata itself. And this may be a little shocking because not too many people think about that. In that time, the sign of nails began to appear in his hands and feet, just like he had seen earlier on the crucified man of the seraph above him. His hands and feet seemed to be pierced in the middle with the heads of the nails appearing through the inside part of the hands and the upper part of the feet, with their sharpened points sticking out from the opposite side. Indeed, these signs were round in the inside and the hands, but oblong on the outside, and bits of flesh appeared as if the highest part of the nail was bent and struck again. His right side had also been closed by a scar, as it pierced by a lance and often discharged blood. The stigmata are not an exterior to interior thing. They are an interior experience manifest out through the epidermis of a man that is a that is an eyewitness account by thomas of chelano who was there and it's corroborated in a couple of other places as well not many people were able to see it or allowed to see it so where are the beauties of things that are incomprehensible. They're right here in this painting, many of them. And I want to at the final stroke of all this, and then I'm going to eat my dinner. Mm -hmm. This is from Michelangelo. It's about painting. In an interview with a, uh, uh, a painter, named de Holanda, who is from Portugal. Michelangelo speaks of what he considers to be the most important kind of painting. The imitation, and this is uh, on that last, last page, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, last page. Painting Michelangelo began. Go down about three lines. The imitation of some single thing amongst those which immortal God made with great care and knowledge and which he invented and painted. Like a master. And on downwards, whether animals or birds in spare... Uh, can't read it. Dispersing perfection according to each thing, the excellent and divine painting which is most like and best imitates any work of immortal God. And that is from the greatest artist that the Renaissance could produce. And that artist, by the way, drank his first water out of Casentino water, because his father was the uh, sindaco of a little town up on the ridge of the Casentino. So what I've tried to do then is tease you. Uh, I haven't solved anything. I don't think I've resolved anything, except telling you that that, uh, this is not St. Francis. But that in itself may be a little shocking. St. Anthony is the star, but St. Anthony in his, you know, he is the only saint whose tongue has been preserved uh, uh, in the uh, chapel at uh, Padua, the Basilica. His tongue, its natural color, preserved there in the chapel. This man who had the voice that moved everyone who ever heard him, uh, He knows what he's looking at, and he is the perfect vehicle for the light, the inner light. There it is. So that's it.
0: Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.